Pastor Matt, and thank you to our worship team. And a good morning to all of you, and also to those who are watching our live stream. It is a good morning. One of the things that's always fascinated me is the ocean. Being landlocked in Boise, uh, it's always fun to go and visit any of the coasts um, because the ocean is just so vast and so powerful. But while there can be a lot of fun had at the ocean, there's also some danger that that power brings. About five years ago, there was a fellow that was vacationing in Hawaii with his family, and he and his sons decided to try their hand at body surfing. So they got out into the water, and uh, everything was going well, until suddenly this wave kind of snuck up behind this guy. And the thing was, they weren't in really deep water. It was only about waist high. And this wave tumbled him under, and his head hit the floor, hit the sand on the ocean floor. And in a matter of seconds, his life had changed because he suffered a traumatic neck injury. He remembers he was trying to, to swim, trying to get out of there, but he couldn't feel his arms. He couldn't move his legs. But then he felt these strong arms grab him and get his head above the water so that he could breathe. And the one that rescued him got him to the shore, and they were able to get him to the hospital. That was a terrible accident. But as I'll share later on, it was also an incredible display of God's power. What do we do whenever life turns us upside down? You know, when that might be a reality for some of you right now. You know, what, how do we navigate? What do we do when there are problems and when there is pain? Well, I want to show you today a really wonderful passage of Scripture that gives us a lesson on the power and authority of Jesus. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 8 from verse 28 down to the end, and then we'll go into the first part of chapter 9. Over the last month and a half, as we've been going through our series in Matthew, we have seen several passages that show the power of our Lord Jesus. And here in verse 28 and in chapter 9, we're going to see two different places where Jesus is at. But in both places, Christ will demonstrate his power and the authority that he has. While you're turning there, let's ask God for his blessing. Father in heaven, thank you for this morning that we can gather and fellowship together. And Lord, thank you for giving us the air to breathe so that we can worship you. For you alone are worthy of all glory and praise. Father, please work in our hearts this morning so that we can glorify you more and more in our lives. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Matthew chapter 8, in verse 28. When he came to the other side into the country of the Gadarenes, two men who were demon-possessed met him as they were coming out of the tombs. They were so extremely violent that no one could pass by that way. Now, if you remember from a couple weeks ago, or a few weeks ago, it is, Pastor Chris showed us that incredible boat ride where they were going along and they were getting swamped in this storm. And finally, the disciples wake Jesus up, and they say, as they said in Mark's gospel, do you not care that we are perishing? And Jesus gets up and calms not just the wind, but the waves. Now, that is power. 
But even before they got into the boat, Jesus told them in Luke's gospel, let us go to the other side of the lake. And right here, they have arrived on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. Now, one of the aspects that I really love about the four gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is that they are presented, as one pastor put it, in stereo. Matthew will give some details that Luke and Mark don't give, and Luke and Mark will give some details that Matthew doesn't give. And it's believed that this passage here in Matthew 8 is the same account that we read of in Mark chapter 5 and Luke 8. Matthew writes that they are in the country or the region of the Gadarenes. Now, in Luke and Mark, they call it the country of the Gerasenes. Now, these names both refer to a couple of towns in the area, and one commentator wrote that it's possible that the territory around Gersa, the town for the Gerasenes, may have belonged to the capital of that area called Gadara, which is where the name for the Gadarenes comes from. Think about it like this. Uh, a lot of us here probably live in Boise. Now, I actually live in Meridian, but if I were to go to Florida or Massachusetts, and if people asked me where I was from, if I said Meridian, Idaho, they'd be like, yeah, and where's that? But if I said, well, I'm from the Boise area or the region of Boise, uh, people would probably recognize it. And that may be the case here, in Matthew, on the location where Christ is. But the significance here is that this is a Gentile region. Now, another issue that comes up with this account is that we read in Mark and Luke that they only mention one. Matthew mentions two. Is the Bible contradicting itself? No, it is not. Dr. Louis Barbieri, in his commentary on Matthew, points out that while Mark and Luke mention one of the demoniacs, they do not say only one. He writes, presumably one of the two was more violent than the other, or one may have been the leader, and that's who was focused on in Mark and Luke. And so Jesus and the 12 arrive on shore, and immediately there is this disturbance. Two men who were demon-possessed met him as they were coming out of the tombs. And if any of us were there with the disciples, we would be very uncomfortable. They are not in Kansas anymore. This is Gentile territory. But that's nothing compared to the two guys they've run into. They have landed on the front yard of a couple of disturbing and terrifying individuals. Pastor Tommy Nelson called this text the showdown. And that's exactly what it is. We have Jesus and we have these two Gentile men that are possessed by demons. We get more details about these fellows in the other Gospels. Now, Mark writes that they lived in the tombs. Undoubtedly, the demons had something to do with that. Now, it's not fun to be uh, in a graveyard at night, but how about living there? Yeah, not for me. But that's where these men dwell. Luke writes that the demoniac had not worn clothes for a long time. Even in this area of the Gentiles, these demoniacs are repulsive and unhinged. You can't be around them because they're so creepy. They're so crazy. Mark adds on to that and writes that constantly, night and day, the man would scream among the tombs and gash himself with stones. 
Incidentally, that is a hallmark of demons. They long to destroy what God has created. These men who were made by God in his image are bleeding, they are bruised, they are cut, and they are broken inside and out. And the demons don't just want to destroy the men they are in. Matthew does tell us that they were so violent that no one could pass by the area. Uh, it'd be like vacationing in uh, one of the dangerous neighborhoods of Chicago or take your pick of any big city. Places that are known for violence. It's hazardous because you know that there are people in that area that have no regard for human life. And it's interesting because both Mark and Luke write that the demoniacs had previously been bound with chains and shackles. Even in Gentile society, people knew something was wrong with these guys, and they tried to help. But these men would break out of the chains with demonic strength. Nobody could subdue them. And no wonder because there's not just one or two demons in these fellows. In Mark, Jesus asks, what is your name? And the man answered, legion, for we are many. It's believed that there were hundreds, if, if not over a thousand demons. These two men are completely and totally wrecked. They are dead men walking. But suddenly, from across the sea, comes this person who is the only one that is more powerful than the demons. In the text, the disciples don't say a word. It is Jesus versus the legion. And in verse 29, these demons know exactly who has just shown up on their front yard. And they cried out saying, what business do we have with each other, son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the appointed time? Jesus shows up and the demons know this is not only their greatest enemy, but they know that their power is completely inferior to the power that Christ has. And the demons essentially say, this is our turf. What are you doing here? We have nothing in common. And when they say, uh, have you come to torment us before the appointed time, that is a reference to the final end of the demonic realm. Later on in Matthew, Jesus will say that there is the eternal fire which is prepared for the devil and his angels. Jesus, as the Son of God, has the power and the authority to send the demons to their final destination. And they're begging him not to do it at that moment. And that's the first major lesson we see here. Demonic power is inferior to Jesus' omnipotent power. When it comes to God against Satan and the demons, it is very comforting to know that it has never been dualistic where Satan and God are on equal playing terms. How many of you have ever stepped on a bug? You can raise your hand, it's, it's all right. Maybe a, a pill bug or an earwig, something like that. Now, have you ever thought how much strength that bug has? Uh, among other bugs, it might be a real power lifter, you know? It can walk around, it can lift things, it can do things as a bug. But when it's compared to you, that bug couldn't lift an ounce. It is powerless. It doesn't stand a chance if it goes up against you. When it comes to God's power, he has it all. From eternity, all power belongs to the Lord. God is omnipotent, 
And that is why God has not and will never lose at anything. Even the power that Satan and the demons have doesn't hold a candle to the power that Christ, the Son of the Father, has in him. Many of you, no doubt, have heard or sang these words. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. It's Martin Luther in the classic hymn, A Mighty Fortress. And here, Jesus arrives on the shore to free these two men that are literally held captive by Satan to do his will. In verse 30, now there was a herd of many swine feeding at a distance from them. The demons began to entreat him, saying, if you are going to cast us out, send us into the herd of swine. And he said to them, go. And they came out and went into the swine. And the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and perished in the waters. Even though the time hasn't come for these demons to go to their place of torment, Jesus still has them by the throat. All they can do is ask Jesus, look, if you're going to get us out, if you're going to send us away, at least send us into those pigs. And Jesus permits it. They came out and went into the swine. One dark fall night, my dad was out jogging on a country road, and he's uh, running along, and he sees something looming in the darkness ahead of him. And he was running into the wind, so it was kind of hard to see anyway. But he starts hearing something, and uh, it's coming right towards him. And he turns his flashlight on, and it's a couple of pigs. Um, and it startled him. He's like, yeah, you know. Thankfully, they weren't charging, but they were moving at a, at a good clip, probably trying to get some distance away from whoever was coming after them. Now, Dad didn't think that they were possessed, but he didn't stop to ask. He just got out of their way, and they kept moving on. Uh, later, we heard that they were caught trying to break into an ATM. That's a true story. No, just kidding. <laughs> Can animals be possessed? Based on the text, I, I think so. Uh, now, my older brother told me, cats can't be possessed because they're already demons. <laughs> if you like cats, talk with him about it. But anyway... Christ drives out this legion, and they go and immediately destroy these pigs. They rushed down a steep bank and into the sea and perished in the waters. In verse 33, the herdsmen that were tending the pigs ran away, went to the city, and reported everything, including what had happened to the demoniacs. Now, think about these herdsmen. They're doing their job, watching the pigs, keeping away from the area of the demoniacs, and suddenly this boat arrives, and they hear this commotion. And suddenly, their pigs go berserk. Now, it would be interesting to see what these herdsmen would say when they went back to the city. But they ran back, and they told what had happened. Verse 34, and behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. Now, stop right there. The townspeople, the city, all come back to where Christ is at. And Luke tells us what they see. We can assume that this was for both men. They were sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in their right mind. This is a miracle. These guys had been completely delivered from this darkness. They aren't naked. They aren't violent. They aren't wild. And they are in their right mind. 
And the people have heard from the herdsmen, this is what happened to those crazy violent guys. What should have been the people's reaction after seeing these men saved? It should say, all the townspeople welcomed Jesus, threw a party in his honor, and marveled at the greatness of God. Right? No. End of verse 34. And when they saw him, they implored him to leave their region. Why? In Mark and Luke, it says the people of that region became frightened. They were gripped with a great fear. And that's the other major point that we see. Jesus' power restores but also divides people. Yes, these two demon-possessed men had been delivered completely, but Jesus' authority and his power over this darkness has implications. And for this crowd of people, they are not on board with that, not to mention the fact that they are minus 2,000 pigs. I've worked in retail. It's hard to make a profit when the pigs are all drowned. Maybe they thought, uh, this man is not good for our economy. So they said, we don't want you. Please leave. Now, that's the part where Matthew ends, but there's more that the Gospel of Luke gives us that we can't miss. The reaction of the crowd is one of fear and dread. They want Christ to leave. But Luke records the reaction of at least one, if not both, of the former demoniacs. But the man from whom the demons had gone out was begging him that he might accompany him. How long had they been tortured and oppressed by the legion of demons? We don't know. But all that this man cared about was to follow after his Savior. The crowd implored Jesus to leave. This man implored Jesus to take him with him. Please, can I go with you? But Jesus said no. And uh, while I think this is the only person that uh, Jesus personally turned down when it came to literally following him, Jesus had another job in mind. He sent him away saying, return to your house and describe what great things God has done for you. And Mark adds that that man went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis, which was an area of 10 cities, and shared what great things Jesus had done for him. In our New Testament, I really believe that this man was the first missionary. He had a personal charge from Jesus himself to share with Gentiles about what Jesus did for him. Missions work isn't too complicated when you boil it down. We tell others about what great things Jesus has done for us. And if any of you have ever done any missions work, you follow in the footsteps of this unnamed man who was told by his Savior, go back and you tell about what God did. Someday when I get to heaven, I'd love to meet these guys. Now, we could finish right here at the end of chapter 8, but there's more to look at in the following verses that give us another angle on Jesus and the authority he has. And it ties right in with the story of the Gerasene demoniacs. Look at verse 1 in Matthew 9. Matthew continues, Getting into a boat, Jesus crossed over the sea and came to his own city. They implored him to leave, and Jesus will not press the issue. A time is going to come later on when Jesus will press the issue. When he returns in the future, people won't have the option to say, please go away. 
So he leaves with the 12, and they sail back to Israel on the western side of the Sea of Galilee. And just like the account of the demoniacs, this is believed to be paralleled in Mark chapter 2 and Luke chapter 5. We have both accounts three times in the Gospels. In verse 2, Matthew writes, And they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. Now, in Mark and Luke, the rest of the story goes something like this. The house that Jesus was at was so crowded with people that these four fellows who are carrying this man who is paralyzed, they couldn't get in. Carrying a stretcher makes it even harder. But they get to thinking, and uh, if you work in sales or a similar department, you'd want to hire these guys because not only are they loyal and committed, but they are creative. They can't get in the door, no problem. Let's get to the roof. Mark writes that they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat that the paralytic was on. So you're sitting in your house and suddenly you hear something up top. And suddenly there's, there's all this dust and plaster and the sheetrock starts to fall apart. You know, you'd be like, hey, what's going on? What are you doing? You're destroying my, my roof and my ceiling. Now, roofing back then uh, probably was a lot less complicated than it is now. But still, that's the length that these men went to to get this paralytic to Jesus. And I've wondered, you know, was it the loyalty and love that these four guys had for this paralytic that made them so determined to get him before Christ? Or was the paralytic really pleading, guys, please get me, get me before him? We don't know. The text doesn't say. But here's what the text does say. They set the paralytic in front of Jesus, and verse 2, seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralytic, take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. Now to us, that doesn't sound that strange, but to the scribes that were in that room listening, this was a thunderclap. Bam! It was unbelievable. In verse 3, and some of the scribes said to themselves, this fellow blasphemes. And that's the first major point of this passage. Jesus' authority sparks unbelief from the scribes. Dr. Peter Davids, writing in the Evangelical Dictionary of Theology, says that blasphemy is the direct or indirect detracting from the glory and honor of God, and therefore the opposite of praising or blessing God. In the Old Testament, blasphemy was punishable by death by stoning. Davids goes on to say that when Jesus forgave sins, he was accused of blasphemy on the grounds that he, being a man, made himself to be God. And so that is what the scribes are thinking here. And it's a very serious charge because this comes down to who Christ is. If Jesus is not God, this is treason and rebellion of the highest degree. But look at verse 4. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why are you thinking evil in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? To be honest, uh, Jesus, knowing what they were thinking, that should have been a tip-off to the scribes. If you can know exactly what someone is thinking, that's a pretty good sign that you have power. He calls them out for their thoughts, and he gives a contrast. He says, just as a concept, 
Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? And of course, the answer is, it is easier to say to someone that their sins are forgiven because it's not verifiable. But if you say, be healed, walk, and they are not healed, you are exposed as a fake. And Jesus is making a distinction. If he can, by his very word, command a paralytic to get up and walk, if he can command the nerves, the muscles, the cells to return to the way they were, if he has that amazing authority, then it's logical that he has the authority not just to say your sins are forgiven, but to actually forgive and take away sin. Mark tells us that the scribes also thought, who can forgive sin but God alone? And they're right. Only God can forgive sins. But the fact is, the man right in front of them is God. He's fully God and he's fully man. And in verse 6, Jesus concludes, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, then he said to the paralytic, get up, pick up your bed, and go home. And he got up and went home. And that's the second major point we see here. Jesus' power heals a paralytic, but also forgives sins. Just as with the man, the men who were possessed by demons, the power of Christ to heal is complete. The paralytic is not going to limp home. His arms, his legs, his spinal cord, everything is restored. Not only can he walk, but he also has the strength to pick up his bed and to carry it to his house. This text hits close to home for me and my family. In my introduction, I started to tell you a true story about a man who was vacationing with his family in Hawaii. That man is my uncle, my dad's brother-in-law. And when his head hit the sand, uh, it broke one vertebrae, dislocated another, and severely bruised his spinal cord. He was unable to swim. He could have drowned. God really saved his life. But my uncle is a quadriplegic. With his, while his spinal cord wasn't severed, uh, he has not regained the use of his arms and his legs. He is paralyzed. And when I read this text, I, my family, my aunt, my uncle, we all would long for God to do the same thing that he did for that paralytic. But the thing is, take a look at what Christ first said. Take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. Christ did not immediately heal this paralytic. His first words after seeing their faith was about this man's sin. And it made me think, is it better to have no physical issues, perfect health, no medical problems, but to still have your sin counted against you? There's a lot of people in Boise, in our country, in the world, that uh, they fit that description. They have money, influence, stuff, health, and they could not care less about the things of God. But the truth is, someday, if they die in that state, they'll have to pay for their sin. But how about someone who maybe life hasn't gone very well for them? Uh, maybe they haven't made a lot of money. Maybe they've had their share of health issues. But if they have Christ, if they know Jesus, if their sins are forgiven, not only do they have eternal riches in Christ, 
but they have a love, a joy, and a peace from God that the world cannot give. I know that many of you, uh, myself included, saw this in one of the men in this church who went to be with the Lord not long ago. It was Mr. Ed Walker. And Ed was a paralytic himself. But so many times we saw that, that joy, that peace from the Lord in his life. And I've seen that in my uncle as well. His faith has grown. His walk with Christ has deepened. And the precious knowledge that his sins have been forgiven gives him the strength and the joy to keep going. If Jesus had merely healed this paralytic in the text and, had, and he had gone home, it would have been great. You know, he could walk. He could take care of himself. But if his sins were not forgiven, it'd only be a temporary fix. The problem of his sin would still be there. Jesus, seeing their faith, gave his word that this man's sins were taken care of. And for you and me, that's what Christ has done for us. Because of his death, our sins can legally and justly be forgiven. It was David who wrote in the Psalms, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sins, whose sin is covered. In verse eight, Matthew finishes it with a reaction shot. He writes, but when the crowd saw this, they were awestruck and glorified God who had given such authority to men. As I conclude, there are some very prominent truths that uh, we can take from this. We saw three individuals who were completely changed when they met with Jesus, the demoniacs and the paralytic. And we see this in Scripture, but a demoniac and a paralytic, uh, those are both vivid pictures of what we are like before we met Christ. Before being saved, we were dead in our sin. We hung out with the dead. We, in, we were enslaved to Satan. And just like the paralytic, we can't do anything to save ourselves uh, and to enter eternal life. Question, can a paralytic run a marathon? Can a condemned sinner earn salvation? No, to both questions. It takes someone who is more powerful than us and more powerful than Satan to give us salvation. And that is what Christ did on the cross. He took our punishment for our sin, for what we did, and he died. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. Jesus was sinless, and yet he died, not for anything that he did, but for the sins that we committed against God. And the Bible says that God raised Jesus from the dead on the third day. And when we repent, when we're honest with God about what he says about sin and when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, trusting completely in him, then we'll be saved. Our sins are forgiven. And if you're listening today, and maybe you realize that you're a spiritual paralytic in your sin, I would urge you, please don't leave without talking to someone here. Because the fact is, Jesus can save anyone. You and I would have never thought that a couple of guys possessed by a legion of demons could be saved and become missionaries. But that's how powerful Jesus is. And uh, unless you're completely insulated from the world, uh, all of us probably know someone like those demoniacs, someone who's hardened and hostile to Christ. But can Jesus save them? Yes, he can. 
And that's one way that we can apply this. The person that you think right now, they would never be saved. Pray that God would change them and then be ready with the gospel. And finally, in both of these stories, we saw two very difficult problems. The men that those demons had taken over had no hope in themselves, and neither did the paralytic. But Christ, in his grace and his authority, completely changed their lives by his power. And for us, this is the other way that we can apply this text. It may not always be as dramatic, and it may not be all at once, but when we are walking by faith, God will show his power in our lives. The next time, maybe it's this week, when you run up against something that leaves you reeling or helpless, where you don't know how to solve it, you don't know where to turn, how to figure it out, don't look to yourself. Look to Christ. Bring it to Jesus, just like the friends of the paralytic. In faith, knowing that he has all authority and all power. Whenever the problems and pain of life slam into us, that's what we should do. Because if Christ can free the demoniac and forgive the paralytic, he can take care of the problems I face. Circumstances might not change immediately, but God will be at work. If Christ can free the demoniac and forgive the paralytic, he can take care of the problems that we face. Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you so much for what your word says. If we did not have your word, O oh God, we would be ruined. Thank you, Lord, that all power belongs to you, that we are not at the mercy of chance or of the enemy. And Lord, the reality that you can forgive sins is the greatest thing that could ever be done for us. We thank you. Give us the strength to be like the former demoniac, to long to follow you, and to share what great things you have done for us. And we'll ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.